Well, I thank you for, uh, <clears throat> for being here this afternoon on New Year's Eve to worship the Lord Jesus. Don't know if you realize this, but hopefully almost a year ago now, on the first day of the year, January 1st, that was also a Sunday. So if you worshiped that, that day, if you weren't sick and you were in the gathering with God's people, then you, are, you began the year worshiping Christ and you are ending the year as well doing the same. And that's a great way to spend throughout your year. And I'm not sure how your year went. Everybody's is unique. But I pray that uh, Christ was exalted and that we uh, rather came to know Christ or we grew in our understanding of Him. And in doing so, we reflect back now at the end on His faithfulness to us in growing us, in saving us, in uh, sustaining our lives, sustaining us in His grace, in our failures and in our weaknesses. And so we want to make much of Him today. Uh, this is a a well-known passage that Adam read for us, Isaiah chapter 9. Um, I kind of pulled a fastball on you, a curveball on you last week and, and actually preached on the first five verses. They're the, le- they're the least f- familiar of this passage um, that we would call a Christmas passage. And very much so, it is used during Christmas time, um, but it just speaks about Christ. And so we want to focus in on uh, verses 6 and 7 uh, tonight as we think more clearly about these things. To catch you up on this passage, uh, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah. Uh, Messiah means anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one. Therefore, we called him Jesus Christ. And as the anointed one, as the Messiah, the promised one, last week we looked at these first five verses that focused on blessings for the coming kingdom that the king would bring and usher into the world. These are blessings that um, we will soon realize and what we looked at last week could not come from just an earthly king. They had to come from someone more. Someone better than Solomon, someone better than King David. They had to come from uh, the Messiah who is uh, God and man. And so the, the climax of this passage is rooted in verse 6 and 7 uh, because we saw the, the, the kingdom blessings and now we are coming to see the king. And that's who is described in verses 6 and 7. So we are going to look at the kingdom ruler today. Um, to refresh your memory, those kingdom blessings that we looked at last week were fourfold. We looked at the way in which uh, the kingdom brings about restoration, and the king restores us, um, that he brings in illumination, he wakens us up to, to, from our dark, darkness and stupor to life in him. We looked at jubilation, we are full of gladness and joy because of Christ and all that he has done, and last week we looked at liberation, and that is the way in which he frees us in our sin, in our, in our debt uh, before God, in the wrath that we face before God, we are liberated. And so what we begin to see in this passage and what the Jews uh, w- w- should have seen, but, but, but yet struggle to see as we 
uh, get into the early earthly ministry of Jesus is that they still were looking for someone that would physically save them, that would physically give them restoration as a nation, that would physically give them gladness and joy. They were, in other words, looking for a physical savior and what they really needed as what we all need is a spiritual one. We need a spiritual redeemer. We need a spiritual uh, savior. And that is what Jesus Christ has come to do. And so what we will focus on today is that, as I said, no earthly king can accomplish these things. It must be the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both man and God um, who would accomplish these things. So let's start off by looking at the description of the king. You're familiar, the kids just saying these titles or, or as we think of them as titles. But I want you to think of these names as not really names, but descriptions, okay? As descriptions of the coming king, the one who came, Jesus Christ. And the reason why we need to, to do that is because we oftentimes, when we think about these as names, we get confused, all right? For example, in verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. Now, if we're going to attribute a title, it's son. That's the title, okay? The son who came, who was a child, the, the title is son, And the reason why the rest of these can't be titles is because you can't be a son and an everlasting father. You can't be both. We have a Trinitarian problem if we if we think of these things as titles instead of descriptions. Okay, and so we'll get to that. So think of these as ways in which we are having the king described to us. All right, described to us. And the first one. This son who was given was called Wonderful Counselor. Now the word wonderful is somewhat of a, a, what I feel like is a delineation because to us it's an adjective. It's something that we would affix to as, man, my Christmas time with my family was wonderful. And to you that is describing the fact that you had a really good time. And so if we say, well, this king here, this promised Messiah is wonderful, we want to say that he's more than just great. Matter of fact, the the prophet Isaiah is saying more than that. He's actually telling us that this promised king is a wonder. Okay? It's divine language. He's not just saying he's really great. He's saying he is a wonder. Something that is beyond natural understanding. He is supernatural. This is divine language attributed to the Messiah as divine, as supernatural. It gives somewhat of a disservice for us just to consider that an adjective. But instead to say, he is a king of wonder. He is one who should be in all ways worshipped as supernatural and divine above all men. We should then look to the promised king as one who draws our undivided amazement and awe because he is set apart from all mankind. He is set apart from all creation. He is the wonder of wonders. And so no doubt we see this fulfilled in Jesus. 
Jesus was and is the wonder of all wonders. He astonished those people that He came in contact with in His earthly ministry. He astonished His followers who lived closely beside Him. He was worshipped even as a babe in the manger as the wise men came to lay gifts at His feet. His enemies were even amazed and astonished at the things that Jesus accomplished and they could not stop Him. And even those neutral to Jesus, for example, like the Romans, they even would stand at His crucifixion and confess, truly this is the Son of God. It's wonder. And so if we understand Jesus as being the wonder, then we owe our greatest worship and adoration to Him. No greater act, no greater wonder occurred than Jesus giving His own life, stepping out of heaven and putting on human flesh so that He may live a perfect life, die and rise from the uh, grave victorious. And that miracle should not only astound His enemies, but it literally should lead us to worship. And so Isaiah is calling Him a wonder who counsels. Or a wonder who is full of wisdom. The word counsel there literally simply means that he is someone who astonishes us in full amazement with great wisdom. Pure wisdom, we might say. And typically throughout history, we are used to rulers and we are used to leaders in, uh, in all of time, earthly leaders... And what do these leaders, these kings, for, say, for, for example, what do they have to do? As kings, as leaders, they surround themselves with what? Wise people. Sages. People that are going to advise them. Their viziers or their advisors who are going to give them wisdom to help them lead in wisdom. And what we are learning about in this king... Is his, this king is separate from all kings because he doesn't need advisors because he is the wonder who counsels or the wonder who is full of wisdom. And this is the Lord Jesus promised to us by the king or excuse me, by the prophet Isaiah, who would be, as the Bible tells us, full of wisdom and truth. John chapter 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we see Jesus displaying and being described as full of grace and truth. That truth being wisdom, that truth being the personification of the law of God that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so He is truly the wonderful Counselor. Secondly, He is mighty God. Again, a description. Really kind of uh, reflecting back to what Isaiah has already said in verse 7, verse 14, that He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so the Hebrew term uh, El in the Hebrew is, is typically used for God in, in, in His name, like El Shaddai would be a descriptor of God. Well, this is El Gabor, and this literally means that God is a warrior God. He is the warrior God. Some may uh, translate it the heroic God or the hero God. 
And so what we are seeing is a reflection back to verses 4 and 5, where the promises of the king would be to bring about blessings of freedom and liberation. Look at verse 4 again. For you, this king, shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as the battle of Midian. We talked about that reflecting back to the power displayed with Gideon as he took his 300-man army and destroyed the Midianites. And for every boot, it says, of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning and fuel for the fire. Here we see victory. Victory from a warrior God. A God who fights the battles for us. The the God who accomplishes victory on our behalf. The child is given to us. The son is given to us. So that he might act in such a way to bring about victory on our behalf. That victory can only be accomplished by a dominating, victorious king. One who rules not with physical victory, but spiritual victory over the greatest enemies of all mankind, sin and death. How could he defeat sin and death? Only by the almighty power of God that he possesses. Therefore, our king, Jesus, is a God king, a warrior king, a hero who comes to annihilate the oppression called sin that we cannot defend in our own strength. He gains victory by His own death and resurrection so that we might cry in the great hymn of this day and He stands in victory. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me for I am His and He is mine bought with the precious precious blood of Christ. That's in Christ alone. We, pro- we proclaim that with joy. The jubilation and gladness that comes from the king is because he has won the battle for us. He has accomplished victory on our behalf because he is a mighty God. Number three, again, I mentioned this already. He is described as an eternal father, which seems confusing. How can you be both son and father? If we're not careful, this could lead to a problem in the distinctive persons of the Trinity. But instead, what Isaiah is teaching us is that these are qualities of the king. That he is reflecting as a king who will love as an eternal father. Throughout Scripture, God is revealed to us as a loving father to his children. Psalm 68 verse 5, that It describes God as a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. The Messiah will love as a father loves his children, not as a tyrant, but in a familial, loving relationship. And this, of course, sets earthly kings apart, earthly kings who rule with an iron, tyrannical fist, who have no physical relation with those subjects under their rule. They're oftentimes set apart from their subjects in their ivory towers, in their throne rooms of segregation. And yet the Messiah is promised to come and come with a loving relationship 
a relationship of fatherly love. And that displays to us a relationship whereby we who trust in this Messiah are His children. Therefore, we can not look to Him as the pagan world looks to Him, as this distant, impersonal being who has no authority or, or, or displays no love. To them, He is just maybe a force, not a father. But we know God as a loving God, as a compassionate God, as one who hates sin, but yet casts His love, unconditional love, upon those who are undeserving of that love. The Bible also describes this fatherly aspect of the Lord Jesus as one who, when He loves us, He reproves us. Proverbs chapter 3 says that from whom the Lord loves, He does what? He corrects. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Listen, the Lord Jesus, the Bible tells us, came into this world and in living a perfect life and carrying out the work of redemption is showing us the greatest display of love. And in that love, we can be saved Become children of God. We're not children of God before we're saved. The Bible actually says we're enemies of God. But we can be children of God who belong to Him, and in love, He will correct those whom He delights. Now, correction from God is not always easy, but it's necessary. It's not always pleasant, but it's purposeful. And so we must understand that as we live our lives trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is displaying a fatherly love for us, one that even could lead to reproof and correction as needed because He loves, because He cares for us. And I don't know about you, but at this difficult day of uh, a world in which we live, there's an, a, an important uh, aspect of belonging to the one who created us. There's a sense in which we don't feel abandonment when we truly understand a relationship with Christ. So that no matter your, your story, no matter what's happened in your life, if you truly have a relationship with Christ, regardless of who may have spurned you or hate you or is disconnected from you, you can feel loved by trusting and belonging to Christ as His children. Knowing that you belong, knowing that you have identity with one who loves as a father loves. So that's the third description as an eternal father. And lastly, the prince of peace. The Prince of Peace, probably the most well-known descriptor of the Lord Jesus, really describing His accomplishments as a king, because we know that He does not bring about a, a, a social peace, per se. Matter of fact, the Gospels actually tell us, Jesus from His own mouth tells us, that His Gospel will actually bring about the opposite of peace. Sometimes the gospel brings about division. When we cling to what Christ has has taught us about holiness 
and we stand firm upon the truth of God's Word, sometimes that doesn't bring social peace. It brings division. It definitely doesn't bring a political peace because there are people all over the world that hate Christians, that hate Christianity. It's not bringing political peace. What it's bringing is spiritual peace. The end of hostility. Because you and I are all born into sin and we are all in a state of sin, of depravity before a holy God and therefore all we have standing between us is wrath and hostility with the One who created us. And Jesus comes. And He gains victory and He brings about liberation and He brings about what we truly need, peace between us and God. So that you may never experience peace with family members. You may never truly experience peace with your neighbors. But you can experience the greatest peace, and that is peace with a holy God who will pour His judgment out upon all those who have rebelled against Him. But when you put your trust in Him, you will, you will experience true spiritual peace with your Creator, and therefore be so transformed by that that you will now go out into the world and dispense peace with other people. As we've learned in recent days, you will be a kingdom peacemaker. You will be people who seek peace because Christ has transformed you. Because He is the Prince of Peace. So church, we should come and be reflected upon this relationship that we have with God through the work of Christ. We should be celebrating the salvation that He brings and the blessings that we can enjoy because of the eternal peace that He has accomplished for us. And as we approach 2024 and we understand that we will face challenges that make our anxiety levels rise and our stomachs churn. Know that we can face those challenges with hope because Jesus Christ is our King. And as our King, He has displayed for us these qualities. These were not just promises that were never fulfilled. They were completely fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, we, knowing that He has come into the world, died upon the cross, and rose from the grave, that act of redemption is the very proof that we can have hope in Him in our greatest struggles that are to come. And by the way, if you haven't reflected, He's the one that's got you through these struggles in 2023. Give your credit. Give credit to yourself all you want. It was Jesus. It was. Trust in Him. Reflect upon Him as the One who has brought about these things. Those are the descriptions of the King. Now let's talk about His dominion. His dominion. Isaiah tells us that for a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on His shoulders. Now we're not talking about a political government here. Isaiah is using language that is not talking about some uh, area or a political area in the world whereby this particular government will be upon his shoulders as the leader. 
That word government there literally means totality in his rule and authority. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, is the king who rules in all places over all things. This child will bear the government upon his shoulders. His rule will be upon his shoulders. He will bear the weight of that rule as king over all. Now notice the connection in verse 4. Because remember the liberation that the Messiah has promised to bring is to break the yoke of your burden and the staff of your, on your shoulders. So in other words, all the earthly oppression, all the earthly uh, um, ca- captivity that we might face, and, and definitely the Jews were facing, as they would face these armies from Assyria and Babylon and the such, that's physical captivity, that's physical oppression. But the greatest liberation, as I said, was the spiritual liberation that he promises. And he will bear that upon himself, so that his rule and reign includes the very salvation that he brings upon us. He takes the burden on himself. So with the coming of the true king, he relieves the burden of our shoulders a burden that we cannot bear ourselves, a burden that that sin and death oppresses us. Listen, as an unbeliever, as people who live in the world as unbelievers, they are constantly under the shadow of sin and death. They can't escape it. It worries them. It plagues their mind. They're fighting against every aspect of life, trying to avoid it with medicine and nutrition and all these things, trying to find some fountain of youth. But as Christians, we don't live under that oppression because Christ has defeated sin and death. And therefore, in the totality of the king's rule, the peace that he has given us has shown us that we have no reason to face that burden. Christ has defeated the burden. He has borne it upon himself. He rules and reigns with all authority, gaining all victory for us. So we must realize that as Christ, the Christ child came, he declares at the end of his earthly ministry, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him by the Father. Therefore, all that exists in this world, his rule and his dominion is never ending and is without border. And therefore, he is ruling over all, And we are called, the world is called, to worship Him and praise Him. They may not do so, but they are responsible to do so. Because He is the sovereign King. And so if we're we're making our New Year's resolutions this year, we need to filter those resolutions through the idea that God is the sovereign King over our lives. What plans and purposes are we seeking to accomplish this year that have nothing to do with submitting to the rule and reign of God? Your job, your college, or or, or future plans as a young person? The people that you're in relationships with? Do those have anything to do with submitting to the sovereign rule of the Lord over your life? 
if he is truly uh, uh, administering and governing all things, then our plans and purposes for the future should say, Lord, what do you want me to do with 2024? How do you want me to live? What should I accomplish for your glory and for your fame? Zechariah chapter 9 tells us, that as the promised Messiah will come, He will speak peace, peace to the nations, and His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And folks, we know, we know that one day Christ will come again and the whole world will see this dominion. They ignore it now. They trample upon it. They blaspheme it. But one day we know that Christ will come again and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But when He comes again, He's not initiating His rule. He already rules. He's ruling over the worst of enemies. He was the Lord of Caesar and He was the Lord of Hitler. And just because we didn't see and understand the existence of such evil people in history doesn't mean that Christ was out of His rule, that those people were operating outside of His sovereignty, but instead we understand that the Lord Jesus has been given all authority over heaven and earth now and forevermore. So we owe Him our worship. Matter of fact, in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government or of His peace. I love what Daniel says in chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, we read that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. In His totality, in His rule overall, in His sovereignty, we understand that that is an eternal rule. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of His peace. He will establish it. He will uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and what? Forevermore. It's an eternal kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom that you and I can belong to by putting our trust in this King. And we worship Him. So it's a total rule in His dominion, but it's also a promised rule. His reign has been promised and foretold. In verse 7, we are told that it was it is on the throne of David and over His kingdom this Messiah would rule. And oftentimes, because we're not Jewish in, in a national sense, we lose the significance of, of that phrase that the Messiah would come and rule on the throne of David and over His kingdom. Why is it so important that the Messiah comes from the lineage of King David? Well, for the Jews it was important because all of their kings in all of Jewish history had their good and bad days. They had kings that were faithful and they had kings that were unfaithful. None of them were perfect. But of all of them, King David was on the all-star team. Okay? 
He was the one that they looked to. His kingdom was the, was the most successful and, and prosperous. And although he was not a perfect king, he ruled well as a king who served the God of Israel and the nation as a whole enjoyed prosperity under his leadership. But there's something important about King David that we must, we must understand. It was the covenant that God made with King David. It was a covenant that looked beyond any of his earthly lineage that came from this world. But instead, it looked beyond that to the God child who would rule and reign on the throne of David as the Messiah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, through the mouth of the prophet Nathan, this was prophesied about David's kingdom. He says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, to the, to the Jews, that could have meant David will always have some form of lineage on the throne in an earthly sense. But what we come to know and understand, and what the gospel writers were intent upon making clear, is that Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, came into this world as in the lineage of jo- or in the lineage of King David to fulfill the promises of God. So Jesus being born and being a part of the lineage of King David only shows us as God's people today that he is a faithful God who keeps his promises. That's what we learn. It was prophesied that David's throne would never end that the Messiah would rule and reign on David's throne. And what happened when Jesus came? God aligned every providence and act so that Jesus would be born in the lineage of David so His faithful promises would come to pass. So why is it important for us today that Jesus was born from the lineage of David? Because it shows us that God is faithful. This is the message you need, church. Every day of this year coming forward, God is a faithful God. He does not go back on His promises. He is a faithful God. We learned this at the beginning of the year in our study of Scripture memory. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Therefore know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. He's faithful. Who does what? Keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He is faithful. You must trust Him. In the days and the weeks and the months ahead, when you have failed to be faithful, God is faithful even when we are faithless because He cannot deny Himself. 2 Timothy chapter 4. So let's rejoice in His faithfulness. That the promises of God come true because God is faithful in His promises. The promises of blessing and the promises of judgment will come to all people in all time because the Lord is King over all. He doesn't forget His promises. He doesn't default on His promises. And one particular promise that I want you to be reminded of in this upcoming year is Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to remember that. I want you to meditate on that. Or Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear, I am with you. 
Do not be anxiously looking about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with what? My righteous right hand. This is the promise. So you walk out of here and you face a a tragedy down the street. You face a tragedy at home. You face a trial in your life in this upcoming year. Be reminded that God is faithful. He will be with you. Doesn't mean you will escape that trial. It just means God will be with you in the trial. He will strengthen you. He will uphold you with His righteous right hand. Trust Him as a faithful God who keeps His promise. And finally, His righteous rule. His total dominion and rule. His promised rule. And lastly, His righteous rule. We're told that this king will do what other kings of the earth cannot do. They will have a kingdom that is established and upheld with justice and righteousness. This final description describes for us the king's rule is a rule and reign that is marked with justice and righteousness. We can say with all certainty that the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus is done with righteous acts and principles in all that He brings to fruition. Throughout the pages of history, what do we see in earthly kingdoms? We see moral corruption. We see injustice, oppression. We see caste systems of different types of people that that spring up. We see betrayal and disloyalty. It defines leaders of nations and leaders of cities and towns. As a matter of fact, it is so hard for us, even in our political system today, to trust any politicians because the general reputation is that they are corrupt. It's hard for us. We see it so much that it is hard for us to trust anybody. And you think, oh, but this one politician, I can trust him. They're all imperfect. But that's not a message of hopelessness. Because we have a king that rules with perfect justice. And perfect righteousness. Total morality. This should be a breath of fresh air for us as God's people. One, because he does this spiritually in us. He literally is the source of justice. You want justice in the world? It comes spiritually. Spiritual transformation and spiritual change brings about true justice. Justice by which someone has to pay for the penalty of sin and death. What happens? It's laid upon Christ so that God can be just and the justifier. That's what the Bible says. So true justice falls upon Jesus Christ when He bears the wrath of God and righteousness comes through His perfection and is applied to all of us who trust in Him. You and I can experience true justice and righteousness at the foot of the cross where our King was crucified. But that true justice and righteousness not just... Focus is not just focused on the cross, but we know that He rules and reign, reigns with perfect justice and righteousness as well. So that there is no oppression of the weak. There's no greed fueling His kingly decisions. He will rule and reign perfectly because His nature is holy in every respect. To be unjust 
The Lord Jesus Christ would have to deny His own holy perfections. So therefore, this is where we are connected. Because when Christ transforms us, when we are so brought about to transformation, where we are illuminated to new life in Him, and He changes us from death to life, then now we as God's people, we should exude such a justice and righteousness in this world. Why? Because our King rules with such perfection. And therefore, He he manifests that through us so that we would live in such a way as the church who are people who are transformed by Christ that we manifest a spiritual change by living rightly and justly in this world. Opposing evil in every way. Standing in opposition to those things that are unholy and unjust. That's what Paul tells us. We've studied through 1 Corinthians. We're almost done. We're getting back to that in 2024. Where the church is called to live in holiness and not to be married to unrighteousness. How can we do both, as Paul says? How can we affix holiness that Christ has given us and unholiness that the world is surrounded in or consumed by? No, we must live as God's people transformed in opposition to evil and injustice. And in addition, as we face trials, as we face difficulties, we are comforted knowing that God is bringing about good in the midst of evil. We trust those evil moments bring about heavenly results for our transformation and sanctification in Christ. God has a purpose for these things. God has a purpose, and because He is in all His perfections, reigning and ruling in righteousness and justice, then we know that He is good because of His holy perfections and therefore bringing about our good. And so all these things are the promises of the great promised Messiah, King Jesus. And I love the way that Isaiah completes this Prophecy for us. And he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Man, what a, what a message of hope for us as it was for the people of Israel. They were hopeless. They were living in exile or, or being prophesied that they were going to be uh, sent into captivity. They would be strangers in a strange land once again. This promise of the Messiah would come. He would be their rescuer. He would be their hero. He would be the one that would free them. And what does it say? The zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. That means nothing's going to stand in God's way to bring about the coming of the Messiah. And guess what happened? Nothing did. That's why the the promise of the Apostle Peter at the day of Pentecost was that God in His own perfect plan put Jesus upon the cross. It was the perfect plan of the Father to put the Son upon the cross so that because the zeal of the Lord would accomplish this for us. That we needed this redemption and it, and it, and it took the, the painstaking crucifixion of our own King. 
His own death and resurrection so that we might have the freedom that we need, the liberation from sin and death. And so the zeal of the Lord did accomplish it. He accomplished it in Christ. And so as we come to think about Jesus, the prayer of the elders here is that your hope and your faith in Christ will be cemented this year. That it will be cemented on Christ. That your knowledge and understanding and passion and relationship with Christ would grow and flourish in these days ahead. However many days the Lord gives you. That it would be the zeal that you have for Christ knowing that He has done all that's necessary so that you might be free because He is the promised Messiah. He is the promised King and He will come again as we sing to rule and reign on earth and in heaven. And we long for that. May it be this year. Who knows? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for these great promises from the prophet Isaiah. A man that we don't know, but we'll know one day in heaven. We thank You for these promises.